Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, making long-term recovery a reality for patients like Cassie, who now supports others struggling with the disease. You can see Cassie's story and learn more at bmcaddiction.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Back in 1516, Thomas More introduced the world to a pretty novel idea that a perfect society is possible if we plan it right. He called the notion utopia, and the idea of a perfect world caught on. This week, we'll look at a bunch of ways and a bunch of different people who've been convinced you can design your own world and you can live in it. And they've had varying degrees of success. Chris Jennings, author of Paradise Now, the story of American utopianism, has written about a moment in America when a far better existence seemed possible. It was the early 1800s. The Industrial Revolution was transforming Europe and it was transforming America. And the perfect society seemed right around the corner. America itself was new. So the idea of starting a whole new place from scratch whenever it felt right seemed vaguely doable. Jennings says that the Industrial Revolution and the power of science spawned a whole crop of utopian communities, many of which were aiming for heaven on earth, literally. These ideas were, I think, fairly mainstream, which is part of what makes the story so strange and interesting, because when we encounter these ideas, they now sound very wild to us and Mm -hmm. really far out. And yet these were ideas that were being passed around in um, well-read circles in every city in the U.S. and in in Western Europe, at least. But I think what people were confronting was not this uh, assumption that technology would make life better. It was this irony. They were looking at where industrialism had taken hold, like a city like Manchester, England, which was probably the sort of birthplace and and most developed example of an industrial economy at that point, was sort of a hellhole. Industrialism had not wrought this wonderful new society. It had wrought a new and even more unequal society than the one that preceded it. In some ways, it was worse than the sort of feudal precursor because people didn't even have subsistence livings anymore because no one owned land. So the utopians were looking at that situation and saying, we, we have these amazing technologies producing this newfound abundance. You know, a machine can now do the work that right. a few years ago it took 20 men to do, and yet it's producing this hellish environment. So their hope was to couple that technology with sort of new ideas about how labor should be organized to produce a better result. Well, and at the same time, they kind of, at the same time as they embraced sort of technology in the future, part of that future was um, like the New Jerusalem, you know, that, that I guess for some reason in the early 1800s, a lot of people thought heaven was like right around the corner. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's another thing with our sort of modern categories of how we think of science and religion. Um, it's hard to understand how thoroughly scrambled uh, biblical prophetic ideas about the coming of the perfection of the earth were sort of mixed up with these very rational, or at least uh, they would have called them rational enlightenment ideas about man's capacity to uh, improve the world, not through divine assistance, but through hard work and ingenuity and math and physics and all of these newfound wonders that had been um, stumbled upon in the 17th and 18th century. So the religious ideas and the utopian ideas are almost impossible to untangle, even for the people who are expressly secular in their thinking. Talk about... um a community that in some ways was more radical than almost anything we can think of now and sort of brought together some of these 
strands that today might not be married together? Well, I, I think the, the sort of best known and, and maybe best loved American example are, are the Shakers. They come out of Manchester, England. They immigrate to the United States just as a tiny little sect, and they explode in numbers in the early 19th century. Their ideas could not have been more radical. They basically wanted to overturn all the basic building blocks of Western civilization. There would be no more family, no more wages, no more private property. Men and women were totally equal. And of course, the doctrine for which they're most famous, there'd be no more sex and reproduction. And so, you know, they were basically doing away with everything that adds up to society as it was then and still is known. And they were basing that idea both on a, a series of sort of religious revelations about what the second coming of Christ was going to look like and how it was already unfolding, and also what we might call uh, rational ideas about how to reform society. And something that the Shakers had in common with almost all the other 19th century utopians is they regarded the family as somehow antithetical to utopia. We had to get rid of the family as it is now constituted before we can have a perfected society. What was it about the family that was that these utopian sort of future looking societies didn't like? (laughs) There was almost nothing about the family that they did like, but (laughs) they come at it from a number of angles with the Shakers and to a lesser extent with everyone else. There's a sort of feminist critique, though they wouldn't have used that language of the family as this institution that enslaves women to a life of drudgery and child rearing and breeding, which, of course, was uh, incredibly dangerous thing to do in the middle 19th century. And it's important as a caveat with all of these communities to say that there was always some distance between their stated ideals and their actual conduct. They were people of their time. So even communities that had very explicit feminist programs uh, within the communities, you know, women might not always be getting the best deal. But I mean, the Shakers... Most obviously, they were organized under a female prophet, Anne Lee, who was sort of the founder of the Shakers, for lack of a better word. She was a woman, and they basically regarded her, though it's a bit complicated, as the second coming of of Christ. So that was a big step towards having a society of female empowerment, having a female religious leader. But even after Anne Lee died, which she did very early on in the Shakers' Um, reign, the community continued to have this notion of male and female spheres that were meant to be totally separated, but totally equal. One of the things that these communities had in common was that they, as you said, they didn't really accept the idea of the family. And so in some way or another, either by not having sex or by just like changing the way relationships are, rejecting monogamy or whatever it was, totally rearranged the way we Uh, create relationships. Right. Well, the best example there, because it's sort of the opposite and the same as the Shakers, is the Oneida community, which is under the leadership of a man named John Humphrey Noyes in upstate New York. And they have a number of interesting doctrines, but like the Shakers... Abstinence sort of defines them in the world's imagination. The Oneida community practiced what they called complex marriage, but was essentially a sort of organized form of free love in which any male in the community with some restrictions could sleep with any female in the community and vice versa. But, you know, so in some ways they're having lots of sex and they're talking about sex in a way that nobody was in the 19th century, focusing on pleasure um, and really being interested in female sexual pleasure, which was obviously a very taboo thing at the time. And so while the Shakers are just down the road from them practicing total abstinence uh, and the United communities having this free love, they actually understood each other as being involved more or less in the same project um, as finding a way to overturn 
uh, family. And, and in fact, they were, they were sort of reading the same little bits of the Bible to reach these very huh. opposite conclusions and sort of pointing to the same text to say, look, this justifies our either free love or our total lack of sex. And one um, shaker described the two communities as noble contestants in building up the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> in a practical way, they, they couldn't have been more different. In one community, you're having lots of sex, one you're having none. And yet they understood that they were basically trying to do something similar. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with author Chris Jennings about the history of utopias in America. Do you think that now in the U.S., we have legacies of these movements? I think absolutely. Um, For one thing, when these communities collapsed, their members often went forth into the sort of wider American society and had very illustrious careers, um, not so much as, as utopians, but as sort of um, what we might now call progressives. These were people who, you know, people left New Harmony and went, set up uh, reformist newspapers and, and tours and things preaching uh, w- women's women's rights and abolitionism and uh, the ideas that were, were at the vanguard of their time for, for sort of uh, then is what they would have called reformist ideas. Um, temperance was often a, a I was going to say, horse. I think of progressives as connected to um, like banning the use of alcohol. I mean, a prohibition, I think of. Yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Although this is this well precedes prohibition as a sort of <clears throat> political crusade, and and I think that's a good example of how a lot of these ideas that 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 got their start and really took hold in these utopian communities eventually ended up turning for better and worse into into political crusades. So um, we've talked about a lot of visions of the future. Let's talk about how these these visions ended and. Um, I mean, they they ended in their own way, but one thing they have in common is the Civil War seemed to be really hard um, on utopian communities. So what happened? Why did so many sort of decline or fail uh, as the Civil War started or, you know, it was going on? I think that the Civil War actually wasn't that hard in a practical way on the utopian communities themselves. Some of them got hammered very poorly. Shaker communities in Kentucky were sort of caught up in the midst of the fighting. Hmm. Um, but but many of the communities, by the time the Civil War starts, had sort of retreated into a, a somewhat um, quieter stage in their development. Um, so th- they were actually largely left out of it. What the Civil War did do was it, it sort of um, changed the the surrounding culture in a way that um, it, it, before the war and before the lead up to the war, it, it had seemed reasonable, this Enlightenment notion that human society is just getting better and better and better. And every decade will be slightly better than the preceding decade. So this idea that the world is in a sort of c- continuous upward trajectory, um, right. you know, reasonable people could hold that belief. After the entire country descended into a sort of lunatic bloodbath for years, it was a lot harder to to make the case that the world is just gradually improving right 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 and that and that we're heading sort of ineluctably towards society of peace and abundance so it's it's not so much that the war interfered in a material way with the communities themselves though there were examples of that um, it was more that the war changed the intellectual climate after the war um, intelligent people didn't look to these communities anymore and say oh that's a plausible description of what the future will look like it sort of took and, the and air I'll, I'll, out it, it, it took the it air deflated out. yeah yeah, yeah it, it deflated that sort of that sort of optimism about um, 
the sort of trajectory of history. Right. And also in a very practical way, the war greatly expanded the government and brought the government mm. sort of into people's lives in a way it previously hadn't been. And so now if you were a socialist, if you believe that the society of sort of shared ownership was the appropriate um, path for history, you looked to the government as a way of enacting your ideas. If you were mm. a temperance advocate, maybe you became a prohibition ag- advocate. Ideas that had previously been practiced in a sort of private way um, went into government. Do you think the lessons that, that you learned, that these utopian communities learned, do you think they have anything to teach future utopian communities? And I don't even know if you have a sense of if such things exist or if there's a you know, rebirth on the horizon. I don't see a lot around now that gives me great hope from a sort of utopian perspective. I think that there's a, uh, you know, I'm sitting here in San Francisco where there's a lot of sort of utopian-ish talk surrounding technology, and I'm not very sanguine about where that will lead. Um, But I think that we now sort of misuse um, that term, or rather we use it for too many things. I think that there's certainly lessons from these folks just about considering what the future ought to look like in a very abstract way. I think it's a habit we've fallen out of, and for good reason. The 20th century, some, some of the, the ugliest, darkest events of the 20th century were associated with sort of vaguely utopian ideologies and ideas that a sort of total revolution was the appropriate way to change the world. We've been somewhat cured of that thinking by what the 20th century showed us. But I think we do a disservice to ourselves to totally fall out of the habit of sort of thinking grandly and abstractly about what the future ought to look like. And not just in terms of whether or not we should have flying cars, but but what, <laughs> what our social relations ought to look like. Chris Jennings is the author of Paradise Now, the story of American utopianism. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you. It was great being with you. We talked about the power of the Shakers, who, of course, don't believe in reproducing. According to Jennings, that was because they thought of sex as pushing us towards our animal selves rather than our angelic selves. Ironically, the Shakers became tremendously successful as a community, and they've survived for more than 250 years. But just a few weeks ago, one of the last three Shakers died. Her name was Sister Frances Carr, and she lived at Sabbath Day Lake in Maine. There are now two Shakers left in America. Both live in Maine. 